listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. So our text for this morning, in case you haven't guessed it, is Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and I'll ask you to rise today for the reading of God's Word. Luke 19, beginning at verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. I want you to use your imaginations a little bit here and now. You can go ahead and close your eyes if it helps and try to put yourselves in the scene that we just read from Luke's gospel. So you're there in Jericho 2,000 years ago, walking through the dusty streets with the crowd as you follow Jesus, the miracle worker. He just healed a blind man begging by the roadside. The man just wouldn't be quiet. It was really kind of embarrassing. No matter how many times you tried to shush him, he just shouted all the louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The neediest people always seem to be the loudest, don't they? And if the volume of his voice was any indication, this guy had it in spades. Need, that is. But when he heard him shouting, Jesus did what he always does. He did that Jesus thing. He took compassion on him, spoke the word, and he was healed. Everyone was was amazed, and they praised God. In fact, they whooped it up like it was Times Square on New Year's Eve, worshiping, worshiping God for the miracle they just witnessed. And little by little, you found your own voice joining in with that of the crowd, at least tentatively, right? Little by little, you're starting to see that Jesus came for the last, the lost, and the least. And maybe you're starting to understand 
that the very ones that we often, society, people, tend to exclude are the very ones Jesus wants to include. You can go to the next slide, Stan. It's not those who are well that need a physician, but the sick. And who's sicker than a blind beggar spurned by the rest of society? After all, it's not his fault he was born blind. The lame, the sick, the paralytics. Jesus, he he really seemed to have a heart for these people, didn't he? And after all, why not? So yes, why not jump headfirst into a party for a blind beggar who can now see in full technicolor 4K resolution for the first time in his life? So, you join in the song and dance, and then you kind of continue along with Jesus on your merry way. But little do you know, Jesus is about to up the ante. All of a sudden, he stops dead in his tracks, like he's felt a disturbance in the force. There's a tree nearby. It's a sycamore tree, a big one, close to 60 feet tall, with thick foliage covering most of the branches. Jesus, he, he lifts his gaze to one branch in particular, and he just, he just stares at it. So you, you follow his gaze, and that's when you see him there, hiding behind the leaves and clinging to the branch like some sort of trapped animal, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. You grind your teeth and you clench your fists. Of all the lowlives and scoundrels, of all the no-good, conniving, thieving extortionists in the city of Jericho, of all the fat cats living large off the backs of their fellow Jews. It's no exaggeration to describe Zacchaeus the way that one gentleman does, as a Jewish legman for the Roman IRS, who raked in as much more than the going tax rate as he could and pocketed the difference. Zacchaeus is one of the most disliked men in all of Jericho. He's the kind of sinner that everyone, bar none, loves to hate. And now Jesus has him in the crosshairs, right? He's sizing him up. He's scrutinizing him, no doubt, looking him up and down. And you can hardly contain a self-satisfied smirk. This is going to be good. Jesus is really going to let him have it. Go ahead, Jesus. Give it to him with both barrels. Call him out in front of everyone. Tell him how big of a sinner he is. Rain down the hellfire and brimstone. This is a moment to relish. Everyone in the crowd holds their breath for the condemnation that is sure to follow. You you can almost hear a pin drop. But then Jesus, with an odd look in his eye, finally speaks, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Wait, did you hear that right? Did Jesus just say what you think he said? Today I must stay in your house? Instead of calling out this creep, Did Jesus just invite him over for dinner? Instead of condemnation and judgment, did he just extend mercy? Instead of excluding him, did he just welcome him? (laughs) Well, this can't be, right? 
And at this point, you're feeling indignant. Healing a blind man is one thing, but befriending a crooked IRS kingpin, man, that's a whole other level. You shake your head as you look around, quickly realizing that you are not the only one who feels this way. Furrowed brows, crossed arms, and and angry faces all around, murmuring, grumbling, some just whispers, but some more heated can be heard. How, how can Jesus do this? Maybe it's because he's still so new to the area. After all, Galilee is where he's from, and this is Jericho, so maybe he doesn't realize who he's talking to. But by associating with such a seedy character, he's risking his own reputation. Maybe someone should talk to him. Maybe you. That would clear up any misunderstanding, right? Jesus could still walk away with his reputation untarnished, and his name wouldn't have to be dragged through the mud by associating with such a corrupt fat cat. But something tells you this is not the case. That look in his eyes, you can see it. You can just tell. Jesus knows exactly who he's dealing with. It's almost like he's looking right through Zacchaeus. He sees him and there is nothing about him that he doesn't already know. But now what's this? Off the two of them trot, back to Zacchaeus' mansion, no doubt, to have supper together, leaving you and the rest of the crowd in the dust, scratching your heads. End scene. New Testament scholar James Edwards says this, Grace is forever scandalous because it is forever undeserved. It insists on including those whom we wish to exclude. The ones we say, really, Jesus? Grace for that person? Right? Like, I get that grace is undeserved, it's unmerited, we, we can't do anything to earn it, but there's got to be some limits, right? We've got to set up some bumpers in this bowling lane, like, it can't just be willy-nilly like that. I mean, grace for that person? Come on. And just like the crowds, we tend to judge certain people's sins as worse than others, don't we? There are particular sins we're more comfortable with, and others we view as more heinous. We like to build kind of our own personal hierarchy of sin, don't we? For example, I can make a joke from the pulpit about how I had one too many helpings of jello salad at the last church potluck, and everyone would chuckle. What does that reveal? That we're, comfort we're comfortable enough with gluttony to laugh at it. Same with things like materialism. If I tell you I blew a little too much money on the new TV, you would at least understand, if not approve, but we could eventually kind of get over that. We'd gloss over it, right? But if I were to crack a joke about lusting a little bit too much last week, I would be met with awkward silence. Or if I told a story about an uncle who had won too many drinks at the last family reunion, same thing. Why? Because those particular sins make us more uncomfortable. 
You see what I'm getting at, right? You see where I'm, where I'm driving? Grace for certain sins, certain types of sinners is okay, is acceptable, but for others, yeah, not so much. There's a popular phrase out there in Christian circles, and you've probably heard it before, love the sinner, hate their sin. Sound familiar? Love the sinner, hate their sin. We use it as a way to avoid the appearance of condoning bad behavior while at the same time loving them without reservation, right? And in that sense, it's very commendable. But there's something deeply flawed with the saying, love the sinner, hate their sin. It focuses on someone else's flaws while ignoring our own. A better, more thoroughly biblical way to say it is what Preston Sprinkle offers here. He says, love the sinner, hate your own sin. Man. See the difference there? There's a humility present in the second saying that is absent in the first. In the first, we're focused on someone else's sin, and in the second, we're focused on our own sin. Now, should sin in all of its forms, everywhere we see it, trouble us? Yes, absolutely. But we're responsible for our own sins. And if the sins of our neighbors bother us more than our own, that's a pretty good indication that our attention is focused on the wrong thing. That we're perching ourselves up on this moral pedestal and kind of looking down upon the masses. Our primary concern should always be the state of our own hearts, right? Jesus made this abundantly clear. Listen to what He taught in, in Luke chapter 6. He says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, it's like we're trying to perform spiritual surgery with a two-by-four sticking out of our eyeball. The results are not going to be great, right? Just like the crowds in the story of Zacchaeus, we tend to judge other people's sins as worse than our own and some worse than others, all the while ignoring the sin in our own heart. That's the hammer of the law for you this morning and for me. And when it hits, it hits hard as it should. But praise the Lord, the law is not the end of the story. Because Jesus knows something else. He knows something we don't. And here it is. Here's the secret sauce, okay? The main point for today. If you only remember one thing, let this be it. Only grace can change the hearts of sinners. Only grace can change the hearts of sinners. The law can't do that. Judgment, condemnation, those cannot do it. Only the gospel can. 
As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, verse 4, he says, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. God's what? Kindness leads us to repentance. In other words, shame won't cause someone to change, but unconditional love, that might. Shame can lead to behavioral change, external change, but it cannot change the heart. And Jesus' reaction to Zacchaeus is is key here. Knowing full well, right, nothing was hidden from Jesus, knowing full well how much money this guy had skimmed off of his fellow Jews, knowing how checkered his past was, knowing how bad his reputation is, what does Jesus do? He invites himself over for supper. That's it. No ifs, ands, or buts. He doesn't insist that Zacchaeus hire Martha Stewart and first get his house in order. He doesn't tell him he'll only come over after Zacchaeus has his act together, as if good behavior were a prerequisite for grace. He doesn't tell him he'll agree to meet him in public, but certainly not in his opulent, sinfully acquired home. See, Jesus' love is not dependent on how good or bad Zacchaeus is. It's dependent on how merciful God is. James Edwards, New Testament scholar, says it like this. This is so good. Jesus does not require Zacchaeus to change before he takes up residence with him. Jesus takes up residence and his presence evokes a transformation within Jesus doesn't require Zacchaeus to change before he takes up residence with him. Jesus takes up residence and his presence evokes a transformation within. You see, the presence of Jesus is what catalyzes the change. You see the difference here. You see the importance of the order here. And here's probably the most amazing thing of this whole story. It actually works. Jesus' unconditional love unlocks something. It It frees something within Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus repents. Listen to verses 8 through 10. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. He's not exaggerating, people. This is sincere. He's going to pay back how many times? Four times. That's above and beyond, right? Not only is he going to right his wrongs, he's going to give back even more than what is required. He overcharged someone $1,000. They're going to get a Roman government IRS refund in the amount of $4,000. He overcharged someone $5,000. They're getting $20,000 back. That's a lot of denarii. Pretty crazy, isn't it? I mean... I've had some decent tax returns, but nothing quite like that. Can you see what's happening here? Grace, which is to say Jesus' lack of condemnation and his unwillingness to treat him as his sins deserve, results in a repentant heart and a spirit of generosity on the part of Zacchaeus. And even more than that, Grace results in salvation, 
verses 9 through 10. Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus fronts grace rather than judgment. You see, the law, which is to say anything in God's Word that tells us what we should do, how we should live, how we should behave, do this, don't do this, the law is important insofar as it drives us to Christ, but only the gospel can actually convert hearts. The law doesn't have the power to do that because it's limited in its scope. It's important and it's necessary, but it's limited. It's intended to diagnose the problem, only the gospel presents the cure. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I love how author and pastor Frederick Buchner summarizes the story of Zacchaeus, this, this wee little man. It's a little bit crass, but it's spot on. Here's how he describes Zacchaeus. He says, he's a sawed-off little social disaster with a big bank account and a crooked job, but Jesus welcomes him aboard anyway. <laughs> and to one degree or another, isn't that the story of us all? Our hearts are crooked and broken, so often stuck in self-preservation mode, comfortable with the status quo of our daily habits, living large in the bubbles of our own comfort zones. We see, Jesus loves us too much to let us stay there. Ephesians 2 says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Right? Jesus died and rose again to save you from your sin, to forgive you, to credit His full goodness, His righteousness, His perfect life to your account. You know what that means? That means that all of the wrongs you have ever done or will ever do, right? all of the skeletons in your closet, all of the things that keep you up at night, all of the fears and worries you have about never measuring up and never being enough, the things you're too scared to admit even to yourself, all of that is taken care of. See, you don't have to be enough because Jesus is enough. And if you, like Zacchaeus, find yourself believing that truth, then the same statement can be said of you today as well. Today, salvation has come to this house. And let me just say, too, if you find yourself believing this for the first time, or maybe re-believing it after a long time, I encourage you to, to come find myself or one of the elders after the service. We'd love to talk with you more. We'd love to pray with you and to thank God for His gift of, of faith. So let's zoom out for a moment here. The million-dollar question. 
What does all this have to do with being God's missionaries, right? That's what this whole series is about, after all. Well, as we exit the doors of the church today, we once again enter the mission field, right? Our, our workplaces, our clubs, our schools, sports teams, coffee shops. And as we do so, we do that clothed in Jesus Christ, the face of grace. Only unconditional love, grace, and forgiveness can change the hearts of sinners. Condemnation alone won't do the job. So as you go out this week, each day, dear Christian, may you do so wearing the face of grace. May the Holy Spirit bring us to daily repentance. And then may we share the incredible message of God's unconditional love, mercy, and forgiveness within our spheres of influence. In other words, our mission fields. You, dear friends, are blessed to be a blessing. Go, therefore, and live as that blessing. Amen. Hey, friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.